All right. Okay, good. I didn't know if we had a bunch of zombies in the room or I was in a science fiction movie or what we were dealing with here. So thank you for that response. Matthew chapter 14 this evening in our study of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation in one form or another. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and you just wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand if you don't have one and make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you if you don't own one. And then make a deep and close friend of that Bible and the God of the Bible. Keep it as a gift. Matthew chapter 14. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, all of the miracles that he was doing. The report comes now to Herod, who is the uh, Roman um, acknowledged or recognized uh, governor of a portion of the Roman Empire that consisted of the northern Galilee region that included Capernaum, which was the center of Jesus' public ministry. And so he is hearing about what Jesus is doing. The uh, majority of Jesus' miracles and his works and his teachings were done in the north of the Galilee. So he hears about it. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, and he is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So as soon as he hears about what Jesus is doing, it's an odd thing. But what immediately comes to his mind is, is that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now up to this point in Matthew's gospel, he hasn't told us what Herod did to John the Baptist and why John the Baptist is feeling this guilt and this guilty conscience that he is experiencing. So he gives us the backstory in verse uh, 3. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, Herod uh, had a brother who was married. Herodias had a husband. She was married. Uh, they ran into each other, obviously, at some kind of a family gathering or some kind of a connection and some sparks kind of flew there a little bit, and they each left their uh, spouses, and Herod took uh, Herodias from his brother Philip and uh, married her. And John the Baptist, somewhere in the course of his public ministry, was asked about that and what the Bible has to say about that, and he declared that what uh, Herod had done was wrong. And Herodias found out that John had made that stand as well, and a very uh, brave kind of a stand to take in that day. Well, uh, although uh, Herod wanted to put him to death because of what he had done, I mean, you, leaders, they don't like to be uh, anybody to show them up or to confront them or any, convict them in any way, but he didn't do so because he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. But there came a day where a series of circumstances lined up and, uh, and Herod fell right into line with it. It was Herod's birthday, was being celebrated. The daughter of Herodias, she danced before them and, and uh, pleased Herod. So this tells you it was a very sensual uh, kind of dance to please him in that, that party. And therefore he promised just a foolish kind of oath to make promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And he has no idea. Maybe she wants a Corvette or something. But 
has no idea the depravity of her mother and where this offer is going to go, I'm sure. And she, having been prompted by her mother, she goes to her mother and says, what, this is what the king has said to me, what should I ask? And her mother, wicked person, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Isn't that awful to think about our brother John the Baptist, his head separated from his body, put on a platter, and delivered as a piece of entertainment and the debauchery of this party. And the king was sorry when he heard the request. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded that it be given to her. And so he sent, John was beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, awful, awful human beings. And she brought it then to her mother, and then the disciples came, took the body of John and buried it, and then they went and told uh, Jesus. So this is Herod here. He knows what he's done. He knew what he, the, uh, the guilt that he experienced in the unrighteous death of John the Baptist. Now he hears what Jesus is doing. He assumes that it is a resurrection of John the Baptist who, though he never did any miracles in his public ministry, nothing that is recorded for us in Scripture, thought here he heard about the power of God operating uh, through his life. And he comes to this conclusion that Jesus is uh, kind of the uh, resurrection of uh, John the Baptist. When I read this uh, account, and I do, I don't try to do it, it just kind of automatically happens uh, for me. Um, I kind of put myself in the middle of that scene, and the death of a man of God as great as John the Baptist at the hands of such awful, wicked people, it hurts my heart. And these people, for all of their position, for all their power, for all their wealth, they're nobodies and they're nothings, in, not only in terms of human history, but in terms of a man looking another man in the eye or a woman looking another woman or another human being in the eye. And it's heartbreaking, just awful, that such wickedness could bring an end to a life like John the Baptist's life. I'm reminded when I think about John the Baptist in this vein of what the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote concerning those Old Testament saints, some of whom were cut in half and others were beheaded and died these martyrs' deaths for simply being faithful to God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews said, of whom the world was not worthy. And Herod and Herodias and the daughter and that whole group at that party were not worthy all of their lives together of a John the Baptist. And yet this kind of thing goes on really all over the world, and it goes on all over the world yet today. Maybe you read some of the headlines that were in the newspaper online in the last couple of weeks concerning the rise of persecution against uh, Protestants against evangelical Christians in Mexico. It's always been going on, but it's a huge spike that's occurring right now. And then the um, spike in persecution against Christians in China 
that's happening. And, and here is China wanting to be recognized in the arena of the world as kind of a fair people and all of this, but the communist government there is against any kind of voice that threatens their totalitarian power and the whole system is against how God operates. And so they rightly recognize the threat that Christianity is to who and what they are. And so this tremendous uh, new persecution meted, being meted out against Christians and in particular pastors and leaders of churches over there. And one story told they're removing crosses from these churches. They're bulldozing them down to the ground in large numbers in China. And it's because God's doing such a work there. So many people are coming to know the Lord. Where, where are you going to turn to for hope in the world today except to God? And the truth that's found in his son, the things that we've sung about here tonight, what, what can the world offer us in comparison to that? And here they were at this one church, and the bulldozers were there, and they were going to bulldoze it down to the ground. And the pastor's wife ran in front of the bulldozer to stop it from happening. And apparently they had opened up with the heavy machinery a great uh, hole in the ground, and the leader of the bulldozing committee said, bury him. And the bulldozer took and moved the dirt. She was pushed down into the bottom of, uh, of the hole, and then the dirt was piled over her, and our sister suffocated under a pile of dirt for Christ. Her husband ended up in the bottom of the pile as well. Somehow he was able to scratch himself to the surface and to survive. And this is the kind of thing that continues to go on. Some people have such a problem with the fact that one day God is going to judge mankind. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. I look at John the Baptist here, and I think he speaks uh, to us very, very much as Christians in the United States of America in this hour in our history. And I'll tell you something, and I, I say it not because it's self-serving, but you really need to pray for pastors and leaders and elders in churches. And there is such a strong uh, move today, even within our culture, only we all feel it. We all feel it as Christians. We feel the noose that is tightening around our necks because our positions that we hold biblically run contrary to a world that is changing, a nation that is changing by the week. And probably every single one of us in this room have found ourselves as a Christian about to say something that's from the Bible, how the Bible says it, and yet because of the politically correct environment that we're in or the morally incorrect environment that we're in, we bite our tongues. And there can be a place for that because, as Jesus said, and we need to heed it like never before, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need the wisdom of the Lord for when to speak and when not to speak. But there is a tremendous push, and you feel it, to silence the voice of God through His people and through His Word. And that is a very, very strong pressure and a very strong power that is being meted out against God's people and certainly against leaders. And to pray for leaders to continue to speak 
God's Word, no matter what the environment becomes or whatever the consequences might become. I am officially disqualified for ever running for political office uh, by virtue of all of my recorded sermons. There was one doctor I read in the news recently that apparently taught a Bible study in some church on his own, on his own. This is his own time. And he ends up getting fired because he holds views that are contrary. I mean, we all know what's going on. And yet here is John the Baptist, and we recognize it maybe more than we ever have before, what it took for him in that environment to stand for the truth of God. I'm not saying not to be wise, not to be discerning and spirit-led. We need to be. But there's a demonic push to silence the voice of God today. And if we get silenced, then who's going to speak? Well, God could make the stones cry out if he has to do it. But we have the privilege of being able to speak for him and to speak not only of the things that he prohibits, but to speak most importantly even of the offer of salvation that he gives to all mankind to relieve every one of us of the guilt that we recognize is in our hearts if we'll be but honest with one another. And so here, here is John the Baptist, this uh, man, he confronts the immorality of what Herod and Herodias had done. It resulted in his arrest and in his death. In this account, when I look at it with uh, Herod's action and his uh, decision-making, he's got a guilty conscience. He feels uh, this, this death of John the Baptist, it haunts him, and he, he regrets what it is that he's done here. This is why he can't shake it. This is why he thinks that it must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so I see here is a man who is haunted by a guilty conscience. But I ask myself as I look at the passage and just between the Lord and I, and I, I look at it, yes, he's a man filled with regret, but what led up to it, that decision that he ended up regretting making? And does it speak something to us about what kind of things can be occurring in our life that we can look at, practical things in our life, and to realize if we go down that same path Herod did, then we're going to make decisions that we're going to deeply regret as well. And I noticed that four things, four things at least in the passage. And the first thing is drunkenness. Of course, there can't be any doubt that this celebration of Herod's birthday involved heavy drinking. Nobody makes good decisions, and nobody makes righteous decisions uh, when they're drunk. I think it's interesting if you ever look at the statistical link between drunkenness and sexual immorality, unwanted pregnancy, sexual assault, it is profound, not only in the United States, but all around the world. How many people deeply regret what came out of an hour or out of a night or a weekend of drunkenness? How important it is to avoid that in order to avoid making decisions that we will regret. And then second, I notice lust is at play here. And of course, the dance of Herodias' daughter was very, very sensual. And, uh, and here is Herod. His lust is inflamed. He begins to act upon that lust. And that always leads to deep regret in life. Anything that is done under the influence of an unrighteous 
lust, a misdirected uh, sexual passion is going to lead to regret in life. And if, that's, if I'm operating in, in getting drunk or getting a buzz on or whatever with alcohol, if I'm playing around with stuff that uh, excites a lust within me to realize tonight that this is something that has to be turned away from or bad decisions are in your future and decisions that you will deeply regret. The third thing that I notice here is the error of making decisions in life based upon peer pressure rather than based upon principle, based upon right and wrong. Herod knew that it was wrong to kill John the Baptist. He understood that clearly. That wasn't a problem for him. He had tremendous clarity uh, on the issue. But in order to save face in front of other people, he did so. And, and peer pressure, very, very powerful influence. And so often... Uh, youth are the ones that get hammered on this particular issue, and youth is a time in which peer pressure plays uh, a massive part in influencing so often decisions that can then be ungodly. I wouldn't want to be a youth again. Um, th these people that are out looking for the fountain of youth, I'm looking for the rapture. And then I'm looking for my ministry to get over and go home to heaven. I have no interest in going back into that. And that's why I pray for our youth, and I love our youth, and I have compassion upon them for what they're in the middle of in life. But peer pressure isn't something that is limited only to youth. Every one of us faces it in our lives, no matter how old we, uh, we get, and the importance of looking at something and saying, the issue here has to be, the decision has to be made on the basis of right and wrong, and what does God's Word say here, and not the pressure that I feel from my peers around me. Maybe there's one or two of us that are in that place tonight, and, uh, and you need to correct that immediately in your life. And then fourth, the inability here is present here in Herod, the inability to admit that you're wrong when you do make a wrong decision or you do do a wrong thing. Uh, and the importance of being able to admit that was a dumb decision, that was a dumb thing to say, that was a dumb thing to do, and now I want to do the right thing. You ever seen that bumper sticker? It's kind of out of uh, style today. You know, things come back in, in and out of fashion, but Christians used to have a bumper sticker that said, God allows U-turns. And He does. And why would He allow U-turns except that we need to take U-turns on a regular basis, even as Christians? in order to uh, look, because none of us makes the right decision every time, Not, none of us does the right thing every time, and we have to be able to look and say, that was wrong, I recognize that it's wrong, and I'm going to make a different uh, decision. And if you're the kind of person, and there are people that are like this, who simply cannot admit that you're wrong when you are, it's just a recipe for disaster. Because I can never, if I dig in on a wrong decision, I can never make a wrong decision right by holding that hand or by digging in deep to it. It will always be a wrong decision. The only thing I can do with it is to admit it's wrong and then to turn from it and to uh, then do the right thing in the situation. And deep regret and a guilty conscience inevitably follows the person 
who cannot admit that they're wrong and change their mind or, uh, or, or, or admit their wrongdoing uh, to other people. And, of course, the greatest protection against a guilty conscience, and I believe a guilty conscience is a very powerful thing operating in our culture today. The number of people who go to bed regretting and, and, and uh, this great guilty conscience upon them and the greatest solution to that, of course, is to trust in Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of my sins and then to live a simple life of obedience to God's Word. There's never a guilty conscience to be found in trusting in Christ, obeying His Word, and then when we do fail, moving as quickly as we can to then confessing our sin to God and repenting. If we confess our sin, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we all fail. You know what's a great kind of encouragement, even when we fail and we sin in given situations? There is a person's brokenness is directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment that I sin and the moment I recognize it, confess the sin, and repent. So if I do something, I sin, and there's months between my recognition of it is sin and then my confession of it is sin and my repentance of it, then I'm not a very broken person. But a broken person, we can't be perfect. We will be in heaven one day, but we can be broken. And a broken person immediately becomes conscious of the wrongdoing that's occurred there, confesses it to God, asks for forgiveness, and then asks for the forgiveness of significant others that we've sinned against or they've been harmed by the decision that we've made uh, or by the sin that we have committed. And so here is this uh, awful, awful picture of the death of this righteous man, and yet here it is, and it has lessons uh, to teach us, and thus it's in uh, the book. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat. And remember, he's blood-related to John the Baptist. He encouraged John the Baptist's faith, you remember, when it was crumbling at that uh, critical time as he was in prison. And so he hears the news, he's impacted by it, and he departed from there, impacted not only as a human being, but impacted as God, the Son of God. I mean, he is John the Baptist's creator. And, and so he hears this, he departed from the place by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard that he had moved, they followed him, <coughs> excuse me, on foot from the cities. Now, sometimes when we go to Israel, we always spend three days up in the Galilee region, and one day we get in a boat and we spend some time out on the uh, Sea of Galilee, and we talk about an event that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit in the Scriptures. And most of the time when we take the boat ride, we don't go all the way across the lake. And, uh, but we'll go, uh, you know, let's say the lake is like this, and you've got all these cities all around the lake. It wasn't always that they went all the way across the lake the furthest distance. They would tend to get in a boat and then just go to the next village or two villages over. You can see with the naked eye all the way across the Sea of Galilee. You can see that. And so Jesus gets in a boat, and he's now going to another city. The people on land see it, and they begin to run along the shore toward the city 
that he's going to, you get a sense for the emotion, the desperation, the hunger that they have to come into contact uh, with Jesus. And so here they are. They come on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out and he saw the great multitude, he said, Can anybody get any peace and quiet around here? No, he saw the multitude. And I like that. He saw And he was then moved with compassion for them. Great heart of compassion. The word compassion, communion of passion. He put himself in their shoes. He could feel what they were feeling. And then he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place. Thank you very much. And the hour is already late. All right, who needs an iPhone when you've got the apostles there to tell you how late everything is getting here? And so they counseled Jesus to send the disciples away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. So the hour is getting late. The crowd has been with him. We know from Mark's gospel that Jesus was not only healing them, but he was also teaching them. It is getting later in the day, probably three-ish or so in the evening, time to get a move on, get some food, get back home, that kind of thing. So the apostles are really trying to look out for the crowd here. And in this, what we're coming into now is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. It's interesting that this is the only miracle, this, other than the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. So that tells us that there's something about this miracle that God wants us to understand how it applies to our lives and what it means to us spiritually, because no matter which gospel we pick up, He wants us to read about this miracle. And so that really gets my attention. And so they inform Jesus of this, send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said to them, they don't have any need to go away. You give them something to eat. Ah, there's 5,000 men out there and we didn't bother to count the women and children. I don't think we're carrying enough Wonder Bread to take care of the crowd and uh, uh, chicken of the sea, some tuna fish for them. So Jesus speaks to them, and it's interesting. He commands them to do something that's impossible, impossible for them to do. Do you know that the Lord commands each and every one of us as Christians to do the very same thing? If you sit here as a Christian tonight, and you know what God has called you to do for His glory in the body of Christ and in His ministry in the world, what He has called you to do is impossible for you to do in and of yourself. What I'm trying to do for God is impossible in and of myself. Sometimes people look at a pastor and they say, well, he's, and especially when you're 30 years in, on this thing. And they start to view you as like the religious establishment because you've been at it so long. And what they don't realize is true of me and is true of everyone that's trying to fulfill God's call upon their lives is all I am is a Pacific Bell lineman and cable splicer 
trying to do the impossible week in and week out so I can one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's who's in front of you every single week. And that's who's in front of God's people every single week in whatever church they attend. But what is true of me is also true of you. He calls us to do what is impossible apart from him. And it's important to understand what it is that's happening here, how it applies to us personally in this room. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then they said to him, uh, and you've got to give them credit. They're going to try and work this out. All right, he told us to eat, and so, Peter, what do you got? Well, we're not, we're going to hear in this thing, and we found this kid, and we clubbed him and grabbed his five loaves and little buns. They weren't even loaves, five buns and two fish, and this is what we came up with. And, and then one of the disciples said, we know from one of the other Gospels, you know, 200 denarii, 200 days' wages isn't enough to buy the bread that would be able to feed a crowd like this. And they're trying now to accomplish this command of God related to their life in their own strength. You know what's interesting about it? So you've got to give them credit. They, they're, trying to, they're trying to be heroic here. He told us to do it. Now we're going to try and do that. And he lets them squirm. He lets them squirm. He lets them count up all those fish like it's going to make a dent in a crowd of 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. But he lets them squirm to realize he's commanding them to do something that's impossible for them to do. And it's fascinating he, as he lets them kind of squirm under the weight of the command. He does the same thing with us too. And, he, and, and how he calls us to do something, tells us to do something, and then we do it with all of our strength. We're going to huff and we're going to puff and we're going to blow that house down. And we give it every effort that we have and we are not able to do what it is that he has called us to do. And so then he said, and here's the beauty of the whole thing. He said, bring them here to me. Put the five loaves and the two fish into my hands. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down in the grass. We know from other gospels that he had them sit down in groups of a certain number. God does things decently in an order. This wasn't like the last helicopter out of Saigon. This, was, this is God at work here. And they were going to rush the table for the food or all, had them sit down. When God is providing, there's no shortage. You don't have to rush the table. It's not a finite resource here. And so he has them sit down. You might as well be comfortable when you're going to get stuffed like on Thanksgiving. And so they sat down on the grass, and then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, and he blessed. And so when you as a Christian... You might not even realize it. And you pray and you thank God for the food that you're about to eat and you ask Him to bless it to your body. This is where it comes from. Jesus doing it here in the Scriptures. And so Jesus takes here. He blessed. He then broke that, the fish and the bread. He gave it to the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave it then to the multitudes. You know what's interesting about this to recognize? is that Jesus did in this miracle what only he could do, but he did not do what the disciples could do. There was a part for them to do. 
He didn't, he wasn't asking them to do what only he could do. That's what he was taking care of when he said, bring them here to me and put them in my hands. But God is not only, you know, getting us to heaven one day from the seat that we're sitting in or the pulpit that we're standing by here tonight, one day into heaven, but he's raising children. What if God did all of the work in everything that we did? I tell you, I'd be so fat and sassy spiritually in no time. I'd be impossible to live with. But he gives us our responsibility. And so it's just like a child. You raise a child and you do everything for them. They're never going to learn anything. They'll be so character deficient, it'll be awful. And so the Lord works in a way here where he does what he alone can do, and then he has them do what they're able to do. And Christian service is that way. And so they all ate, and they were filled. And so here are the disciples. They're walking around with these baskets and filled with the loaves and the fish. They can't find any more takers. These people are filled. And the word there where it talks about being filled means they're glutted. They're absolutely stuffed. People couldn't eat any more. And if there were a bunch of people, you know, that were a part of the AARP, they had put some sugar packets in their sleeves and some bread and some things a little bit for, you know, later in the evening. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. God's provision, when it's miraculous, and it's always miraculous, is never an excuse to waste. Never an excuse to waste. God doesn't waste anything. He certainly won't waste our lives. He didn't waste the leftovers of a miracle that he could have performed five minutes later without any sweat. But here's the point. Here's the principle. We don't waste the miracle or the grace of God. And those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and uh, children. Now, I think this is a very, very important lesson uh, for each of us as Christians. Again, as I say, God calls us to do the impossible. You say, I don't feel like I'm doing the impossible. I go to work. I try to take care of my family. I work in the children's ministry or whatever else I might do, but I don't feel like I'm doing the impossible. You are doing the impossible because God is putting a favor and a power and an influence upon your life that you don't even recognize is there, what he's doing through you. And what he's doing through you, only he can do through you. He's giving you an influence that you would never otherwise have. And so here God calls us to do something. Our first consciousness, even Moses and, and, uh, and Gideon and all the way through the Old Testament, the first consciousness of his, is of our inadequacy to do the thing that he has called us to do here. And, and, then, and then Jesus says, bring it here to me. And so when God calls us to do something that's impossible and we try to figure it out and we realize, humanly speaking, this is impossible, what do we do then? We do what the disciples did here. We put our five loaves and our two fish, the little tiny things that we are, the insignificant things that we are in the face of the greatness of the need in the world today, we put it in His hands. It's now His problem to perform the miracle, and then we do what he tells us to do next. 
That'll take some weight off of your shoulders. And that's what they did. And when God calls us to do something, we give him our life to use, and then we say, now you're going to have to tell me what you want me to do next here is a part of the miracle that you're going to perform. And the key is to get who and what we are in his, into his hands. And this is one of the things that is so discouraging, I think, for everyone, all of us as we serve the Lord, is we look at our lives and we realize how insignificant we are in the face of the need that is in the world today. I mean, what is... God calls me to usher and greet at the church that I attend. And the whole Middle East is in flames. They're burying Christians with bulldozers in China. What difference does this make, me ushering at church on the church that I attend? It looks like nothing. It looks insignificant. But if he's called us to do it, then it's significant to him. And we all face this thing, that what difference does it make? I remember talking with a man uh, a couple of years ago and the head of a huge Christian organization in not only the United States and in the world. And one of the greatest things that he deals with in his life, even though what he's involved with is reaching millions of people, is this gnawing sense that what I'm doing isn't making any difference at all. But that's not our problem. That's not our problem. Were the five loaves, the two fish, into his hands. You use my life. I'll let you, Lord. I give you permission to do that. It's my pleasure and honor to do so. And now you tell me what the next step in this miracle looks like. And then it's up to him to do the miracle. And he will do that. It's very significant, I think, that concerning this miracle of the feeding of uh, the 5,000, that in John's gospel, John links this miracle to Jesus' subsequent teaching in John chapter 6, where Jesus declares himself to the multitude that is following him at this time, that he is the bread of life. And they came to, he, he fed them, did this miracle. The next day, a huge crowd came to follow him. He said, you're coming because you think I'm going to give you another meal. He said, I'll give you a meal, but I'll give you a spiritual meal. I am the bread of life, and whoever partakes of me eats of my body, drinks of my blood, and he goes on to speak about the spiritual blessings that are found in becoming a part of Christ, Christ coming into our lives and, and, and becoming a part of, of our lives. And Jesus declares himself there to be the, uh, the bread uh, of life. In that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, again, that whole word glutted where they were stuffed, Thanksgiving stuffed, you know what that feels like. It's a few months away, and there you are. They, by the time they bring the pie, you've, you're wearing spandex. You said, break out those docker pants that I haven't worn in 30 years. they got that stretch fabric. You've even unbuttoned the button on that put on a jacket that goes down to your knees so nobody sees it or anything, and yes, I will have another piece of pie. They were stuffed physically at this miracle. And when Jesus declares immediately after that that I am the bread of life, he is declaring that I will be to you spiritually what that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was to that crowd physically, glutted, filled 
satisfied. And so he's done it. He is the bread of life. And when I gave my life to the Lord and you gave your life to the Lord for all the problems we still face in life and raising those kids and keeping food on the table and trying to keep gas in the car and all the things that we're hustling to do in life, the one thing that we have that the people in the world don't have is we have a spiritual satisfaction. I'm not on a search anymore for the meaning of life. When Jesus came into my heart, that search was over. I am so satisfied. Are you satisfied? The satisfaction that he has brought into our lives. There isn't even room for one more bite. You read Ephesians chapter 1 of all that we are and all that we have in Christ Jesus. That's just a way of saying, I can't put another piece of pumpkin pie inside of me. Christ has blessed me so fully. I don't need anything from Buddhism or from Islam or Shintoism or from secular humanism or from atheism. I'm satisfied. That's taken care of. And that's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing has been lifted off of us as Christians. For all the things that we yet face in life, we don't have to deal with that. That spiritual satisfaction has been taken care of. And this miracle, as we read about it in the Scriptures, the importance of realizing that it speaks to not only God's power to satisfy physically the power that Jesus had to perform a miracle like this, but that he has done this and more spiritually in each one of our lives. Satisfied is a wonderful word. <laughs> How much of the culture is satisfied? Sometimes some people, the waitress will come up in a restaurant, can I get you some of this or can I get you? And, or some, I'm satisfied. And I am. I don't need anything else. And I think about the Lord and what Christ has brought into my life and spiritually I say, I am satisfied. And what a blessing it is to be in that kind of a place. Then the next miracle that's recorded here is Jesus walking on the water, and immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and uh, here is the end of a long day, and so here he's heard about uh, the death of John the Baptist and, and uh, the healing of this crowd, the teaching of the crowd, the feeding of them now late in the day and all, and, and uh, we know from other Gospels that after feeding the crowd, he's in danger of now they're going to take over and they're going to crown him king of Israel. And so immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and then notice very significantly, go before him to the other side. So he tells them to go to the other side. And one of the great lessons of the passage is when Jesus tells us we're going to go to the other side, we're going to go to the other side. It doesn't mean there won't be st storms or there won't be difficulties or trials. But he's told them ahead of time, go to the other side, which means they're going to go to the other side. Also notice that he tells them, go before me. In other words, you go to the other side and then I'm going to join you. You go before me in this. And then while uh, he sends them, and his intention then was to send the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. And so here is this day, a day filled with heartbreak, a day of giving and giving and giving and giving, a day of dis discipling the disciples. And now here it's the end of the day. Jesus goes home, makes some popcorn, plops on the couch, and watches some television. 
I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. Sports Center can be very tempting to lots of us at the end of the day. But you know, I do think it's worth thinking about. And sometimes when we've been stretched, really stretched spiritually in a day, and the great temptation is to just go veg out somehow, some way, to at least give consideration, you know, that the great need of my life might not be that remote in my right hand, but just to go aside for some period of time and just commune with God in prayer. And that's what Jesus does here. I'm not doing a guilt gotcha on these other things. There's a place for that. But to also realize, to put into our thinking at the end of a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever the day might be in our lives, a hard day, and to realize this might be the very thing that I need to do. I need some time alone with God. And now when the evening came, he was alone there. But the boat is now in the middle of the sea. It's well into the night. They are, by the time Jesus comes out to the boat to them, they've been nine hours out in the middle of a storm trying to get that boat from where it got launched to where Jesus told them to go. The boat was now in the middle of the sea. And there's a word I don't like uh, in terms of being on the ocean. And I know Pastor Bob feels the same way that I do back there. Um, Here's a boat being tossed. I know about tossing a baseball, tossing a football. I don't like hearing boats being tossed, especially when I'm in one of those boats. But here's a storm that hits the Sea of Galilee that's tossing the boat that they are in, for the wind was contrary. I don't like boats that much. I get on them when they're big. Like the boats that I've been on, they're like four times the size of this room. They're called cruise ships. And even then, I write on my hand where our uh, lifeboat is, what deck, you know, and the whole thing. I remember one time a friend of mine took Karen and I and some others out on the San Francisco Bay on a yacht that he had, or a sailboat, a sailboat. I I said yacht because I wanted to be impressed, but it was... Actually, it was a sailboat, and maybe that's a yacht. I don't know. And so we got in this sailboat, and uh, we're in the San Francisco Bay, and, it's, and there's some nice chop to the water and everything, and we're, he's teaching us how to move one side and gets the, way, you know, the wind and to move so we don't have to use the engines that are on the ship. I would have never gotten on the ship if I didn't know there were engines on that ship. San Francisco Bay, I don't like the San Francisco Bay. I like it, like from Knob Hill. So here's this thing, and, and we start, we're working these sails and these and everything, and I have absolute confidence in our skipper. And, uh, but the way the tide is going and the way the wind is going, we're moving underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. So I'm looking up, and I'm seeing that orange bridge up there, and the bay is over there, and the ocean is over here, and we're heading toward the ocean. And I don't... I'm not comfortable with the San Francisco Bay. I'm certainly not comfortable with the ocean. And so we continue to fight this thing, and I'm praying, Lord, help us, help us, help us, Jesus. Peter, he understands he's going to you know, save me in just a moment. Help us. And then finally we realized we need a little bit of power, and I heard my friends say, start the engines. Oh, <laughs> yes, start the engine, and let's get to land. So here they are, they're out in the middle of all of this, their boat's getting tossed, and, 
and thrown around. It's a big old storm, and they're fearing for their lives. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, and he's walking on the sea. And the disciples saw him walking on the sea. And he had told them to go before him, but, you know, you forget stuff like that when you see someone walking on the sea and you've never seen that before. I mean, they're, they're with Jesus for three and a half years. We talked about Paul and his three years of preparation. Well, the apostles had three year, and a half years of preparation. Why would Paul get robbed of, of that too? God is, Jesus is developing their faith. Every, just like every day he's doing something new. Now he's walking on water, but they don't know it's him. And so they were troubled, and they cried out, It's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Now, cried out for fear is, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> you know, they're clawing each other and hugging. I don't know what it looks like. I think you try to be, you know, a little cooler than that, but I don't know. And when the disciples saw him, they cried out, It's a ghost. They cried out for fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be Afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Let me walk on the water out to you if it's you. And so the Lord said to him, Come. And that's a command. That's a command. You come. And anytime God gives us a command from his word, it gives us the power to obey it. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Peter would have loved for this account to have stopped at verse 29, and then he would be handing out, I walked on water pins, and John didn't. (laughs) But the passage goes on, but, and the word but means forget everything that happened before, and now here's what really happened, but, and when he saw, and it's great to circle that word saw, at least in your mind, When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. That's a second word to circle. And beginning to sink, that's a third word, sink to circle. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. So he's got his eyes on Jesus. Listen, I know if you've been raised in church or you're two years old in the Lord, you've already heard all about this. You know it inside and out. I know that. But he puts this in here because we need to be reminded of these things all of the time. So he's got his eyes on Jesus, and he's doing great. But there's competition to that, isn't it? I mean, it would be effortless for me to keep my eyes on Jesus all day, every day, if there weren't waves and storms and circumstances in my life that were competing for my vision and my attention with Jesus. And that's the portion for all of us in life. That's a reality. So he's doing good as he's got his eyes on Jesus. His focus then goes to, hey, I'm doing the impossible here. And he puts his eyes upon the circumstances. And then fear begins to become a part of things. Take my eyes off of the Lord. Fear is going to grip me. And then he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And uh, the Lord honored that prayer. He certainly wasn't going to let uh, Peter uh, sink there and drown. He told him he was going to get to the other side. And so uh, Jesus immediately, and I want you to notice that word immediately. He prayed the prayer and boom, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And uh, I think it's a gentle kind of, you know, poke at, at his faith. You were doing good. I had faith. You kept your eyes on me. And then why did you doubt there on this? My cir- if I put my eyes on my circumstances and take them off the Lord, doubt is always going to come in. And then I'm going to sink. It's, it's, just, it's just the way that life is. We're not in a boat, but we're in a storm. We're in circumstances. We're going to sink under the weight of, of the circumstances. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And uh, then those who were in the boat came, worshipped him, saying, <clears throat> Truly, you are the Son of God. And so let me just ask a very, very simple question of us here <clears throat> this evening. And that is, <clears throat> as we are in life, and we are... As, as we look at the passage, there's the realization that there are storms in the will of God. And I have within my mind, even though I've walked with the Lord since 1980, still when a storm comes into my life, it still has a tendency to surprise me and make me doubt about whether I'm in the will of God in this particular circumstance. But they were smack dab in the middle of God's will, and there was a storm that was a part of that because Jesus was developing their faith. And, and here is this storm and the importance of realizing that Jesus' word is going to have the final say in our situation. It says we're going to go to the other side, then we're going to go to the other side, and we're going to make it. But we have to keep our eyes on him when, uh, in the middle of all of that and not the circumstances. And here's why. Because there's only one place I can set my eyes in this world that they are then on someone who is greater than every storm I will face, and that is Jesus. He's the only place I can put my focus on and realize that he helps me to see these storms and circumstances in my life and to bring them into perspective because he's the only one that is greater than those, the storms I face. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. So how about you tonight? You know all about this. You've heard this story for a hundred years, and you're only 40 years old. And you're transfixed tonight by your storm. Is using up all the oxygen in the room in your life. And you're sinking, and you're afraid, and you're filled with despair. And I don't care how long we walk with the Lord, it's a temptation for us. We fall prey to it. Again, that's why this is in the Bible. And the need to look at it and say, no, this wasn't just something that was 2,000 years ago, but this is something that speaks to my life tonight. And it's so easy, no matter, again, how long we've walked with the Lord, for some period of time to have the circumstances just mesmerize us, frighten us, begin to sink us, and then we need that reminder, and we need the reminder tonight to get our eyes back upon him. And when he says we're going to get from here to heaven, or we're going to get from here to the fulfillment of such and such a promise, he takes responsibility himself for making sure that that happens. And the fact that we sit here tonight in this room and seated and clothed and in our right mind is a testimony to that fact. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, 
And when the men of that place recognized him, they went out into all of the surrounding regions, brought him all who were sick, and they begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as uh, touched it were made perfectly well. So Jesus has had this massively full day the day before. He spends the night in prayer and rescuing his disciples. They come to the shore on the Sea of Galilee there, and then here is this huge crowd. The word goes out, he's here. And they begin bringing every lame person and every person with need is in from all directions now for him to minister to them. And what does Jesus do? He heads into the next day. You ever work a double shift? Jesus did that quite a bit in the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick up chapter 15 next time. Let's stand together, and we'll pray together. Worship team, come forward. That'd be great. Father, thank you for this chapter that we've looked at tonight. It's good to fellowship with an old friend again and to come to know him or her a little bit better as a result. We thank you, Lord, for the truths about yourself and these familiar passages that we've looked at tonight. And though we know them, most of us, and know them very, very well, it's wonderful just to sit down once again, find a comfortable chair and the presence of the Holy Spirit and to experience the beauty of the truth of the passages once again and to be reminded of the things that you know we desperately need to be reminded of all of the time. Jesus, thank you for the firm grip that you have upon our lives. And thank you for the spiritual satisfaction that you have brought to our lives. Wherever we may be on the mountaintop or in the valley tonight, in hardship or trial, or difficulties, whatever the challenges might be. We thank you that on top of all of those, we are not still searching to try and fill the empty hole that was once in our heart. Thank you for filling it so thoroughly and so wonderfully. We bless you tonight in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.